Hey, it's Erica. I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to Global News What Happened To ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The island of Hispaniola can be found in the middle of the Caribbean. But you might not be as familiar with the name as you are with the two countries that make up the territory. They're the Dominican Republic, and of course, its neighbor to the west, Haiti. Haiti has a population of 11 million people, and for centuries has been known as the Pearl of the Antilles. But in 2010, that gem was rocked by a magnitude 7 earthquake. It lasted for less than a minute, but the damage was catastrophic. Buildings were reduced to rubble. Chaos reigned in the streets as the sounds of grief and despair echoed in the air. Patients anxiously dug through the debris in search of survivors. People around the world watched powerless, wanting to help in any way possible. Those who could opened their wallets, and donations came in by the billions to help rebuild this small Caribbean country. It's been over a decade since that earthquake rocked Haiti. And yet, in some parts of the country, the damage and devastation is still there. I'm Erica Vela. In this episode, we go back to that day in 2010 to relive the tragedy with those who survived. And we'll look at what happened to the billions of dollars that were donated. This is Whatever Happened to the Haiti Earthquake. Francisco Auguste was born in Haiti. He was raised by his mother and grew up in a close-knit family of seven. He was especially close with his three younger brothers. When I spoke with him, he described what a typical day looked like in 2010. It was just the regular um, school throughout the day, and then you go after after school to either do some homework or you go around and hang out with friends and play soccer. on Saturday mornings, everybody gets up and clean the house and stuff like that and do chores like that. But um, as far as my family goes or my little brothers go, um, we would usually play soccer. That was like the main um, type of activity that we do like when we're not in school. So that's, that's what we would do. He remembers Tuesday, January 12th of that year very clearly. Our day started out normal. Everybody dressed up for work. Well, for school, pretty pretty good as as always. And I think like school left out around four. Went home. I was I was laying on my bed. I think doing some work. And my little brother, he was um, sitting on the floor in the living room with one of his friends. They were watching TV. When like suddenly everything started shaking. 
took us it took me a few seconds to realize what it was um i looked outside the door and everything was shaking the walls that surrounded um that surrounded the the building that we lived in for was falling and so i realized it was an earthquake and um i ran across the living room and grabbed my brother's friend's hand and also pulled my brother and told him follow me and i think like in between um us running out at some point i let go of my brother's hand but i was still holding on to my brother's friend's hand so we got separated in between that in in between that time and like maybe like 20 seconds after we made it away from the building in the whole side of the building where we were it collapsed it was a three-story building concrete obviously he was in shock as adrenaline coursed through his body francisco escaped death by mere seconds and around him was chaos it was a lot of screaming a lot of yelling um everyone calling on jesus um cuz not everybody knew what was going on or not everybody understood what was going on and you know in those 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 type of times i guess that's who um everyone calls on as the initial shock wore off francisco looked around beside him was his brother's friend who escaped the collapsing building with him and immediately he had this sinking feeling in the pit of his stomach i couldn't see my brother uh or i didn't see him so for some reason i thought maybe like he ran like a different direction and made it out all right so i started like going around the house around the building looking for him and calling out for him and couldn't find him started looking out for my for other people that i knew my my mom i was scared or oh, it was then i was terrified um and worried that he hadn't made it also worried that maybe it was my fault you know cuz i was the one who grabbed him um or i was the older one in the in the room i should have probably grabbed him or something carried him uh but I, I, that was what i was feeling at the time francisco says he often felt like he was his brother's protector Peterson was 13 years old and after the earthquake he looked everywhere for him. So we kept searching for him too with my mom and she was she was yelling and crying as much and as hard as Francisco and his mother looked they couldn't find him. It was it was friends that had to dig up um through the rubbles cuz yeah nobody asked for us like Cruz or the government or that those type of people nobody was out there yet tons of tons of um cement but it was a few days after till we finally discovered that he had died under the building he was like maybe 5 seconds too slow Francisco's worst nightmare became a reality he was barely recognizable and having to watch my mom go through that same pain It, 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 it was a lot uh, just very very painful it it was definitely a painful day for everybody you know just seeing everything that you had built or the people you had loved stuff that took years and years to build or relationship take years and years just disappear after like 35 seconds the earthquake leveled parts of Haiti Port-au-Prince, the country's capital, was the epicenter. Death tolls vary, 
Conservative estimates are around 65,000, but the Haitian government said the number is probably closer to 316,000 dead. Over 300,000 people were injured. 1.5 million people were displaced. Any earthquake can cause damage. With a magnitude 7 earthquake, you can expect considerable damage to well-built structures and collapse of poorly built ones. But the level of devastation in Haiti was much larger. It was catastrophic. So the earthquake itself is powerful, but it's made much worse by like the, the infrastructural issues uh, in Port-au-Prince. That's Justin Potter. He's an associate professor at York University in Toronto. He's part of the Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change. Justin confirmed my suspicions. A magnitude 7 earthquake is very strong, but in most developed countries, you wouldn't see the mass amount of destruction that happened in Haiti in 2010. He gave me this example. In China, there was an earthquake in 2008 with around the same Richter scale rating, actually higher, 7.9. And uh, one in every 595 people died. Um, In Haiti, one in every 15 uh, affected died. In China's earthquake, one in every 690 people affected were rescued. In Haiti, one in every 16,588 people were rescued. So there's just... It's important when people who study natural disasters talk about a concept called vulnerability. So it's not just the magnitude of the physical disaster, whether it's like the the heat of the fire or the scale of the fire or the scale of the earthquake on the Richter scale. It's also, you know, the nature of the buildings, whether the buildings are up to code, whether the government is able to mount a rescue operation, whether... Um, You know, the ability to get people to hospitals, the ability to do the medical work that can save lives. So all of in all of these respects, Haiti is the Haitian people were extremely vulnerable. As I mentioned earlier, Haiti is in the middle of the Caribbean and it's prone to natural disasters, tropical storms, hurricanes. In fact, in 2004, the island of Hispaniola experienced torrential rainfall, which caused massive floods. It's estimated almost 2,500 people died. That same year, Haiti was hit by two hurricanes, Ivan and Gian. But Haiti is a developing country, and according to the World Bank, it's the poorest in the Western Hemisphere. In 2019, Haiti's gross domestic product per capita was just over 1,200 U.S. dollars. Compare that to the country's neighbor, Dominican Republic, which is over $8,200. And now consider the figure for Canada with GDP per capita at 46000 So you might be wondering, what is GDP and why does it matter? It's the standard measure of the value added through the production of goods and services in a country during a particular period, which means it's a good measure of the income earned from the production of goods and services. So as you can see, Haiti's GDP is very low. And I began to understand part of the reason why when I started looking into the country's history. My first visit was when I was a grad student, my first year. 2001, and I've been coming back twice a year since, to two or three weeks in the winter, two or three months in the summer. 
That's Mark Schuler. He's a professor of anthropology and non-governmental organization or NGO studies at Northern Illinois University. He works at the University of Haiti and has studied the country's history extensively. Mark was actually in Haiti when I spoke to him for this episode. What, what, what keeps me coming back is the, the humanity of people. He told me about Haiti's rich history and how much of it centered on sugar. Caribbean sugar plantations was where it was at. That was the that was the bedrock. That was the foundation of global capitalism as we know it today for the last 500 years. It was Caribbean slavery and the brutality of that system of sugar plantations. In the late 1700s, enslaved people working on those sugar plantations started a rebellion. Haitian Revolution was fought over several several years, uh, over a decade, in fact. And it was the only time in world history where formerly enslaved people kicked out their colonizer and became independent and free at once. It also triggered the end of the slave trade. Uh, Britain passed the uh, abolition of the uh, slave trade three years later, a direct result of Haiti. And as a direct result of Haitian independence. In 1804, Haiti was declared a free republic. It was an assertion, an early assertion uh, of the humanity of informally enslaved people. But freedom came at a high price. To punish Haiti, you know, Haiti was in a, it's in a sea of slavery. The Caribbean was where the Caribbean, North America, and, you know, when I say Caribbean, also including the northern coast of um, South America. There's 15 million people that were shipped to the New World, um, literally worked to death seven years in the plantations. The Haitian Revolution fundamentally altered everything around it, and, but it, and it, was hot, it was in a hostile environment. Everywhere around it wanted it to fail. And so the next generation of Haitian leaders um, negotiated with France um, to pay uh, an indemnity to, re, to recompensate or to compensate France for the loss of its property, for the slaves, for the human beings. Mark says this indemnity was basically a tax on freedom. It was 150 million francs initially that plunged Haiti into debt um, until the First World War when the U.S. Um, seized it and renegotiated it, took the gold reserves. Um, so Haiti was in debt for 120 years for the audacity to say we're human beings and we deserve to live freely. Okay, so you might be wondering, what does the Haitian Revolution in 1804 have to do with the 2010 earthquake? Well, most people probably wouldn't have been able to anticipate the natural disaster. But it should make you wonder, if the country didn't have to pay all of that money to France for as long as it did, would Haiti have been in a better position economically? Would they have been able to build infrastructure that could potentially withstand an earthquake? We'll never know because we can't turn back the hands of time. But when I asked Mark, he gave me this example. So 80% of the government revenue, imagine 80% of Canada's national budget for 120 years um, going to pay off, let's say, I don't know, Brazil, you know, 80% 80 of your budget for 120 years, instead of building telecommunications infrastructure, road infrastructure, irrigation infrastructure, public health and sanitation infrastructure, you know, public education, uh, public higher education, defense, all of that, you know, 80% of your national budget went to pay off basically a racist uh, system. I wanted to get back to Francisco's story. 
On January 12, 2010, he said he looked at the disaster that surrounded him. His brother, Peterson, was gone. His home was now rubble, and wherever he turned, he saw the country and the people he loved so much in ruin. People were still terrified. People were still in pain. People were still crying. Um, And also, like, you know, the aftershocks, they went on for days after, you know, just still getting used to those, but also... Um, trying to move on with life or trying to adjust within this new situation, whether it means like finding people that you haven't seen, people that are that were probably still under the rubble somewhere, because some people it was probably weeks after until they found them, or just figuring out what do you do now, where do you live, um, how do you go, get back to normal, um, but also like the country as a whole, I think. After that, I know if I remember well, it was like a three days of just fasting and praying and crying out to God. Before the earthquake, he and his brothers had been living on a campus operated by Christian Light School. According to their website, Christian Light School is a non-denominational Christian ministry that's based in the U.S., In Haiti, they provide education, food, and housing to young people. And at the time of the earthquake, another campus was being built. We were building um, on a new campus uh, so we could move the school and the rest of everything there because it was getting a little bit too small where we were at. And so we had already started construction somewhere else. Um, It was not close to being finished. It was basically like, I think most of uh, the places were, most of the buildings were just uh, the floor and walls, no ceiling whatsoever. Um, So it was a construction site. Um, So we moved there. I think it it was a couple buildings that were finished or at least had a ceiling on there. So we used those like a few days after the earthquake or like the week after. Everybody was sleeping outside mostly like uh, in the open away from um, any buildings because of the aftershock so you never knew what when an an aftershock would happen and what could happen to the building so most of us were just um, sleeping outside in tents on tarps and stuff like that so yeah we were pretty fortunate I have to pause here Francisco said he felt fortunate but he lost his home and he was mourning the loss of his brother even then, he recognized there were others who had even less. It was crazy. So, like, on the streets, for those who had lost, like, their actual homes, and a lot, the way the buildings are, are made in Haiti or in some places in Haiti, like, they're, like, on top of each other, kind of, or they're super close together. So it's not really, like, not everybody has, like, a, a piece of land that where if the building fell over or crashed, they could just clear it out and put a tent there. So a lot of them were just on the side of the streets. And I think that's how a lot of um, different places started, Um, like in the countryside or around the the city, people started moving out there and started building, well, not necessarily building, but putting tons of tents out there where it looked like a whole city, but only with tents and stuff like that and tarps and using those as a place to stay. Mark Schuler was also in Haiti just days after the earthquake. And what he saw shocked him. 
I arrived on this on one of the first few flights that the U.S. military allowed to land with a medical mission for the neighborhood in which I live here in Port-au-Prince. My job was to be doing the facilitation, the um, translation, and set up logistics. I'm, I'm not a medical professional, I'm just an anthropologist who had connections with this particular neighborhood and spoke the language. So, um, yeah, so I was there eight days. Um, so there are slums, shanty towns in Port-au-Prince that were completely leveled. Cinder block houses built with cheap materials and, and you know, um, it's it's the only t- it's the only thing that people could save money on is the building materials. So there are whole neighborhoods that were flattened. The National Palace flattened. The roads are still crumbled and rubble strewn about it. Um, on my neighborhood of about eighty or so people, that's the street uh, of eighty or so people, twelve people perished. I was there when you know the rubble was still um, uncleared and there were bodies still unearthed. They were still under the rubble. Um, my, the neighbor across the street, she lost her house and her dad, not on January 12th, but one of the aftershocks. Amid all of the horror, Mark said he noticed something remarkable. People coming together in ways that had never happened in Haiti before. Haiti's a very stratified society in terms of income inequality. There's um, a whole bunch of stuff about the exclusion of Haiti's poor majority dehumanization of the, the peasant class and the urban proletariat, the urban working classes or you know, urban poor. Um, for that moment, that didn't exist. There were people were literally living together, pooling what resources they have. It was amazing. I mean, it's just like the, the level of community organization, communication, the strategic communication, the, um, the spirit of, of collectivism and solidarity, I'll never forget. Because it was, that is what, what people did to survive. They pulled each other out of rubble. They, you know, pooled the resources they had, um, the cooking utensils, the food stock, everything. So there was, that, that moment was almost indescribable in terms of the ability of people to pull together to survive. It wasn't just Haitian people helping each other. In the days following the earthquake, Francisco said he saw others answer the call for help. It was people from, from really from all over the world. Um, I'd say in the moment, we're all super grateful because we, we actually, we really did need that help. But it was people from all over the world coming in at the airport or coming in from sending in shipments of stuff, of supplies, and just bringing them to different areas of like high concentrated areas of people that needed the help. I know like as far as like supplies, as far as water, tents and food, um, they they brought a lot of that. And I think it was really helpful at the moment. Uh, but also um, there are tons of different countries who are sending in money and that type of financial help to the government. Uh, can't say too many people saw where that help went or what it was used for. In total, more than $13 billion was pledged following the earthquake. And as money kept pouring in, there was also an influx of people flying in from all over to help. But I wondered, just like Francisco did, what happened with all of the money that was raised and what did it accomplish? I reached out to Sandra Wisner, who's a senior staff lawyer with the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti. 
It's really unclear how many NGOs arrived in the country with varying reports placing the number as low as 3,000 and as high as 20,000. After the earthquake, humanitarian organizations were the primary service providers in Haiti. They had enormous resources that often exceeded the resources available to the government ministries. For the earthquake response, the the interim commission for the reconstruction of Haiti, called the IHRC, was created to coordinate and deploy resources effectively and provide a response to concerns about stakeholder accountability and transparency. I'm going to pause here for a moment. Sandra mentioned NGOs, non-governmental organizations. And just like the name describes, NGOs are organizations that work independently from the government. You would recognize some of them like World Vision International, Oxfam, or Doctors Without Borders. So following the earthquake, it's estimated that thousands of NGOs offered help. Sandra mentioned the IHRC, the Interim Haiti Recovery Commission. The IHRC was supposed to be a coordinated effort between the Haitian government with help from the U.S. government. The the majority of the members of the IHRC were foreigners, uh, with Bill Clinton as co-president. And uh, major projects included emergency food aid, temporary shelter, and the creation of an industrial park with a new port. There were important gains in, in some places, but really not at all what it should have had for the amount of money that was invested and what was promised to the Haitian people. Still to this day, some Haitians are living in post-earthquake camps in the country. Um, One important reason for why reconstruction funding failed was that it it largely bypassed the Haitian government and Haitian leadership altogether, with less than 4% of funding going to state budgetary support and less than 2.3% to local organizations and companies. We know local actors are critical for community buy-in because communities trust the organizations that they know and have been working with over time. The, the externally imposed solutions that, that very much prioritize short-term stability over long-term gains further entrenched you know, this acute devastation wrought by the earthquake and undercut the public system. And you know, this reinforced the very conditions that made the earthquake so devastating in the first place in 2010. The IHRC's intention may have been to help, but Sandra says only a small amount of that help was given to the people who needed it the most. That was the case with a lot of the foreign aid coming into Haiti. The IHRC, the commission, really should have set the model for doing it right since they had experienced leaders at its helm. Um, But hundreds of millions of dollars resulted in in few long-term positive results and with no consequences. We had money directed towards emergency shelter and food, but longer-term assistance faced numerous barriers. There's another aspect to this that Mark Schuler explained to me as well. He said foreign aid is expensive because the majority of the time it's going to foreign contracts rather than going directly to the Haitian people. Mark tried to break down some of the logistical issues for me. When foreign aid workers first arrived, they needed assistance and accommodation. It was not uncommon to give a $1,000 a day retainer uh, to be an expert in Haiti right after the earthquake. I know of several people that had a $1,000 a day retainer. 
if you're a landlord in Port-au-Prince and your house was stable and it was tagged green for habitable, you could charge $2,500 a month for a house um, because an NGO contractor will pay that. And they're looking for like spending money because they have to spend it down. USAID had a burn rate on like how quickly you could spend the money. That was how, one of their evaluation criteria. So by contrast, that was about what I paid for a year uh, for a three-bedroom place in Port-au-Prince. Just to give you a sense of just how warped this economy was. According to Mark, there were also issues with inclusion for local actors in the coordination of humanitarian assistance. The um, humanitarian aid was coordinated in the UN cluster system in a UN base at the international airport. Um, the meetings were held in English and they were passport protected. Uh, you know, that they had these foreign troops checking out your passport to give you access to this military base. Um, and I've a couple times deliberately did not present my passport just to see if they get let through. And guess what? They let me through because I'm white. Uh, and my Haitian colleague who worked for the Haitian government wasn't allowed access. Um, so and literally excluded from the process by linguistically, you know, they were literally outside of that conversation, not imagined as part of the solution. Mark told me that a lot of the foreign aid workers neglected to speak with the people who were most impacted by the earthquake. When you have someone like coming in, even with good intention, let's grant the NGOs good intentions. If you don't know anybody in Haiti, you're going to gravitate towards the first person who speaks English. And they probably have a genealogy or history of work collaborating with a foreign missionary or just some sort of like upper class person who's got good education. And they've got lots of prejudices about poorer people or people that don't agree with their their religion. So structurally speaking, a cultural imperialism is reproduced. If people making decisions, people that have the purse strings don't speak Creole and the people in the aid recipients don't speak English. You, you got to think about who's translating. And it's literally translating, but also intermediating contact. Let's take a pause here for a moment. The majority of the money that was donated by foreign donors was given to these NGOs. Part of the reason why? The Haitian government has long been accused of corruption, mismanagement, and misinformation. I asked Justin Potter about this. Remember, he's the associate professor at York University. To deny a government their ability to function and deliver services and deliver security to the public is uh, not an idea that I think anybody would accept in the context of their own country. So that the fact that people are saying it about Haiti is just, it's just another nasty thing that people say about Haiti, as far as I'm concerned. He says corruption exists everywhere, and NGOs and the international community have had their fair share of missteps as well. If you think of corruption as the um, appropriation of funds intended for some good purpose and, you know, taking that money and putting it in your pocket, that's in an institutional massive way exactly what the international community did in Haiti and has done. So there's, it's just, it's, it's absurd to, to talk about corrupt for, for those same actors to then accuse the government of corruption. We know that of the billions of dollars raised, very little went to help those who needed it most. But Mark told me about one water and sanitation project where money was given to the Haitian government. 
The meetings were not held by the airport at the UN Logistics Base. The committee met at city halls across the metropolitan area, and it was co-chaired by the Haitian government. The only one of its kind, and it was very successful. They made a goal of 100% coverage of wash, water sanitation services, in the camps in, in Cité Soleil, the poorest commune in the poorest municipality in the, in the metro area. And they succeeded because the Haitian government said, we have a priority here. NGOs, you with, you with the resources, please help. Please meet this goal. And NGOs stepped up the plate. NGOs do step up to the plate if the Haitian government tells them to do it. They don't step up to the plate if no one's telling them to do anything else. NGOs are private entities accountable to just their donors. And they do not think outside the box. They're not, they don't have any structural responsibility or accountability to the people they serve. So this private patchwork system will never work. There were other failures after the earthquake that put people's health and safety at risk. Nine months after the earthquake, people in Haiti began getting ill from cholera. Haiti's principal river was contaminated with infected human waste beginning in October 2010. It killed 10,000 and infected over 800,000. So since 2011, IJDH and BI have worked alongside cholera victims to seek accountability and remedies from the UN in line with its own legal obligations. We've, you know, we've made some progress. Uh, the UN has finally admitted its role in introducing cholera, but its response to cholera continues to violate victims' right to reparations as set out under international human rights law. Some studies say cholera may have been introduced in Haiti by UN troops from Nepal, where the disease is endemic. Sandra also has much graver allegations against the UN's actions in Haiti. There's also very clear evidence of sexual exploitation and abuse of women and children by the very UN peacekeepers meant to serve and protect the population. So for over three years, the BAI alongside IJDH have been pursuing child support claims on behalf of victims of UN peacekeeper sexual exploitation and abuse who were impregnated and abandoned by the fathers without support. And, you know, we're committed to standing by victims in their journey to pursue these very complex international legal actions. The UN has been a barrier every step of the way uh, for victims obtaining justice. So these are just some of the more telling examples of where international actors wanting to support the earthquake response and, and other civil challenges in Haiti have created more harm and they, they need to take responsibility. In 2016, the UN Secretary General apologized for its role in the cholera epidemic. The United Nations deeply regrets the loss of life and suffering caused by the cholera outbreak in Haiti. On behalf of the United Nations, I want to say very clearly, we apologize uh, to the Haitian uh, people. We simply did not do enough with regard to the cholera outbreak and its spread in Haiti. We are profoundly sorry for our role. I had one question after speaking with Mark and Sandra. We know there were major mistakes made in the foreign aid response to the 2010 earthquake, from unaccounted financials to epidemics and more. But that happened over 10 years ago. And I wondered, were there any lessons learned? If you look at the response to Hurricane Matthew in 16, in October 16, 
the international aid system learned that they have to work with and not around the municipal governments, but without changing the formal the formal structures that they created was just like fiefdom, uh, um, deputies. They deputized their distribution to the local government as opposed to an international NGO, which is progress, but you're also creating the same like all-powerful structure and a fiefdom in the process. Other lessons that were learned um, was to link humanitarianism development. Um, how well it's applied, we'll see the next disaster. Um, another lesson that was learned was the Haitian people need to be the driver of this. Humanitarian NGOs remained in Haiti for years following the earthquake. But Mark said when the money started running out, they left. The, the humanitarian NGOs and the agencies uh, basically declared victory when the, uh, the di- displaced tracking mechanism or matrix, sorry, DTM, the displacement tracking matrix, when they basically counted um, the number of people living in tents uh, as official internally displaced persons or IDPs. And uh, basically the five-year anniversary of the earthquake, they declared victory and, you know, um, that apparatus was uh, disbanded. So you still have people living under tents, but they were no longer officially camps. They were called villages instead, um, like Karadu, like places in Jacmel, et cetera. Um, but the NGOs themselves that did the assistance, if they weren't there to ha- in Haiti to begin with as development NGOs, they, they were mostly gone by that point. So that made me think. Earlier, I mentioned that Mark had actually been in Haiti when I interviewed him for this very episode. I wanted to know, it's been 11 years since the earthquake. What does the country look like now? Are people still living in these camps? So I was just at a place called Karade, which is um, near the U.S. Embassy in Tabar, literally just across the street from the, the municipal border of Delma and Tabar. And it's also close to uh, Aristide's university, um, Fondation Aristide pour Democratie. And it's very much still there. Um, a few years ago, the Haitian government um, did a decree that people that could, that could afford to build um, were allowed to build. And so it's now a more permanent settlement. And I was also definitely there uh, in... Uh, Leogan, uh, was often called the capital of the Republic of NGOs, because that's where that was closer to the epicenter of the earthquake than Port-au-Prince. Um, and there are still settlements there. Um, that Habitat for Humanity built a, you know, a village for people displaced from the earthquake, and it's still there. And there's definitely still temporary shelters. There's definitely still ply- people living in plywood and even tarps even in 2021, 11 years after the earthquake. So yes, very much people still uh, are still living in these settings. According to the International Organization for Migration, nearly 40,000 people in Haiti are in displacement sites across the country, many of them likely from the 2010 earthquake and other crises that have happened since then. In 2010, I remember watching the aftermath of the earthquake. I saw the unimaginable conditions that Haitian people were forced to deal with, losing a home, family, not having access to food or water. I knew that there were billions of dollars raised that didn't lead to any significant change, and it upset me. So I wondered, you might be too, what can we learn from this, and how can we ensure that the money we're donating will make it to the people who need it most? 
I think what's really important to remember is that local civil society organizations in particular already have the experience and networks in place, which, you know, is really at the core of any effective response. So these organizations are often better placed to respond to disasters because of their relationships with communities, their experience, and, you know, their their general know-how. We know that after the earthquake, foreign aid organizations and NGOs instead treated the country as a, a blank canvas. And what we saw was, uh, you know, a replacement of government functions by the system of foreign aid, um, this really honed system of, of foreign aid. And this has harmed um, the population's rights in, in the long term. So I would encourage people interested in this work to to think about supporting organizations on the ground who have experience working alongside communities and incorporating that local expertise and voices. So, you know, organizations who are really well-known, who are trusted in the community, and who are in it for the long run. Francisco says he still has questions about the aid that was donated following the 2010 earthquake. I think to this day, we're still confused as um, as to what happened to all those donations. But also, like, it was a lot of different organizations just starting up um, out of nowhere, each having a different, well, most of, most of them had the same goal, but none of them were really doing anything. Um, and the, all the help, all the money, you can only see so much that was done with it. Um, and to this day, I don't think anybody really knows what happened to um, a lot of those money. But of course, there were other international organizations who raised money and said they were going down there and do, and do stuff. But we look back a few years after, um, they really didn't do much. So He's living in the U.S. now. He was accepted into a U.S. college and is now working as a business analyst. It's taken him time but he's learned to live with what happened on January 12th, 2010. I think a lot of us have, have moved on. Um, a lot of us have um, healed in uh, some way, if you could say that. But also, of course, a lot of it, I think a lot of people are still dealing with it. But I think personally, um, I think I have moved on. Um, though the details are still there, the memories are still there. Instead of going back to 2010, he often reflects on those happy moments he had with his brother, Peterson. I think some of my favorite memories were watching, just watching him play soccer. He was so t- talented. And I think if, if, if he were still alive, he would probably be doing something soccer related because he was so good at it. And also, I just I think I think of a lot of, you know, times where we argued or fought over uh, trivial things. Um, you know, just taking life for granted, you know. But he wants people to know that Haiti, while it has its problems, is more than what we only see on the news. I think uh, one mistake that the international community has done over and over again is, you know, just going down there and hand stuff down to people, just give stuff, um, dump food on us uh, instead of, you know, like, teaching the people down there, this is how you do this, or like giving them real steps where they can make a difference by themselves instead of 
creating a cycle where they're constantly depending on the international community. Francisco says Haiti is home. And one day, he plans on returning. He's also planning on starting his own organization that can help nurture the skills of young Haitian people. But as I wrapped up my conversation with Francisco, there was one thing that he mentioned that stayed with me. The international community views Haiti, whether it's like just in general, I think many times we focus a lot on the negative parts. We focus a lot on the bad parts of Haiti and we do not focus as much on the beautiful parts, beaches, natural places that you can visit or natural monuments and forts that we have built there. It's a beautiful place to visit. Hearing Francisco speak so proudly about his home country made me think. Haiti should not be defined by the images and the stories that we see and read about. It's a country rich with history. It's a country with kind, generous people. It's the pearl of the Antilles. People who have long been trying to take control of their past, their present, and future. Thank you for joining me this week. Thank you to Francisco for sharing his story with me. Whatever Happened To is written and produced by me, Erica Vela, with producer Dila Velezquez. Our audio producer is Rob Johnson. A special thanks goes to Beatrice Politi, Network Managing Editor for Global News. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend about the show and help me share these stories by rating and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We're always looking for new stories. So if there's a new story you want us to revisit, you can reach me on Twitter at Erica Vela or email me at erica.vela at globalnews.ca. Thanks for listening. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.